Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast, and this is episode 25. Today, I have Steve from Oat Journal. Steve, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, <laughs> I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, I've participated with Oat Journal before, and we'll get into what that is in particular. And I think it's been a long time coming to, to finally have you on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So we'll start this off. Let's hear a little bit about you. Uh, how did you get into anarchism and anarcho-primitivism or anti-civilization in particular? Um, well, I was a, you know, a teenage anarchist coming into uh, anarchy right at the end of the, the archetypal moment for people of my age, um, where, you know, you, you kind of had all of the after effects of Seattle and um, all of that going on. And you had Eugene. Of course, Eugene was kind of like the Mecca at the time. Um, hmm. And uh, I basically, you know, went to classical anarchism because it was so it was so it was so easy to find. Um, and, and I would say I went from reading, you know, Berkman and Goldman and Krakin and Bakunin and, uh, you know, perusing the AK Press catalog um and then came across a few texts that were difficult for me from that perspective because you know the 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 spiritual appeal i, I guess i'd say of, of anarchy was that it was as a teenager very engrossing that people were telling me that you could have basically the modern structure and we would all work and we'd all you know anarchy works you know, we can all we mm -hmm. can be more efficient, and uh, you know, like Brian Oliver Shepard and Peter Gellerlus and some of these people. And I thought, um, okay, that's interesting. I'll just keep reading. And you know, this is really about uh, you know the real oppression is, is to the worker. Uh, and then you know, starting to have some disquiet about that and looking into other perspectives. And I just remember I uh, particularly reading uh, Story B, and I don't even know if this would hold up for me anymore. But at the time, there was a, a section in there, you know, talking about sort of infinite growth and in population and, and like throwing the book across the room, you know, like this must be deeply erroneous. And then also the same time, I guess, Jensen also was was coming coming into a language older than words and culture make believes come out. Um, and so kind of thought, hey, there's probably something a little bit more interesting that's more appealing to that. To that core of anarchy that was so appealing and um found ga and uh, uh and then by the time you know by the time i was a late teen i had i organized the conference in baltimore that brought out a bunch of different people uh you know kevin tucker uh john zerzin and uh theresa kintz and other people uh, and kind of got uh immersed into the anarcho-primitivist scene as it were mm. yeah interesting so that's where i wanted to get to next and you mentioned some names there uh and you now that you're older what would you say many of your influences whether they're people or projects or even events what are the influences that are playing a part in your life now i think i spent a long time in anthropology i think trying to pursue this more doctrinaire primitivist perspective but as i've you know an interesting 
sort of uh, adjacent point to that is I'm kind of not sure where that comes from even. Um, I think it might come mostly from the uh, black and green at the time and maybe a little bit from John. But now I moved a little bit away from that concentration on anthropology to the point where I was, you know, in school for anthropology and thought that was, you know, going to illuminate all the uh, central truths. Oh, I was there too in community college. That's where I was. I did a, I did a little bit of anthropology. And then two things I realized, this is a little boring and I have no idea what the fuck I will do with this. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. I know that I wanted it to be really exciting. And I think I manufactured that for myself a bit. Not to say that some of it's not. I mean, certainly I think Marshall Solins can be quite entertaining. Uh, you know, Marvin Harris has got a lot oh, yeah. of really complete, uh, <laughs> maybe too complete theoretical cycles that are interesting. Um, James Woodburn. I mean, th- these people, Tim Ingold, I still think is incredibly interesting to read. Yes, when it came down to raw ethnographic data, I had to really restrain the doubt in my mind that Mm -hmm. any of this made any sense that the measurements of human culture were, could be numerically represented or represented through a kinship chart. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so that, that, that led to some moving into, you know, critiques of, of anthropology somewhat um, and to, and to other technological critiques. Honestly, I, I think now it, you know, like Jacques Salou is a a big influence for me. And it's kind of interesting because it's very theological, uh, but that theological basis allows for a real reflection from the author it because there's a, there's a a real intense grounding. So I don't know that I've found that for myself, but I I think it's really, uh, it's really uh, entertaining and important to to get that perspective. But yeah, I I mean, I, I read a lot of, a lot of different people. I suppose I spent a lot of time in the critical theory world, you know, Audrey and Foucault and yeah, Agamben. And, and I've, I, I read, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm currently in the middle of uh, Black Blossoms at the end of the world, which was a nice surprise to see in the mailbox. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Um, and so you, I wanted to go back. You were talking about Story of B. And this is just yeah. for my own curiosity. What about the population dynamic? You said that you said it may not hold up for you anymore. What is because I've, I've been thinking about Daniel Quinn a lot, just because I have a lot of friends locally who are getting really into primitivism, and he's Daniel Quinn. Someone I throw out pretty easily, just because. I mean, you can read Ishmael in an afternoon if you wanted to. It's not very hard. So I'm just curious uh, where where you've gone since then and maybe what are some shortcomings in, in what you think uh, Daniel Quinn's per- was pursuing? Oh, you know, it's probably been nearly 20 years since I've read the book. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say that the impact it had was this idea. Well, I guess to back up, it would, there, there's a sort of leftist progressivist idea that says that, uh, you know, all commodity expansion is basically inevitable and technological expansion as well which of course enables the commodity expansion is just going to continue and that there's a way to organize uh the world through anarchic principles and uh mutual aid and uh collective decision making consensus uh lots of different processes in which we can sort of make anarchy work and we can appeal as almost 
a political structure, structure, uh, political project within the structure of civilization. And that always, I mean, there was a little disquiet there from the beginning, but at the same time, you know, uh, I'm young and they know more than me. I'm sure they've thought about it. You, know, you make all these types of assumptions. And Story of B really presented this idea that, really a Malthusian idea, if I remember correctly, that the increase in food production would lead to an increase in population and that, you know, the project was changing how we live, not feeding the starving people of the world. And at that mm -hmm. time, I guess you would have to understand, too, that famine and consumerism and the opulence, you know, the, the superabundant society was kind of in the discourse more. And as opposed to now, I don't, we don't really talk about people starving. That's not a hot political issue. I don't know if you've noticed. It's kind of right. gone away. Similar to around the same time that sweatshops started to go away. So we, that became a silence issue. The sort of dark face of consumer society became something that we just don't talk about because it's more interesting to talk about or more uh, less guilty feeling to talk about this sort of cultural issues in our you know high imperial society. So uh, yeah, story of B at that time, I could not refute any of the arguments that were made, I would say now, maybe I would be a little less accepting of a Malthusian argument, but I don't know that I have, I kind of sit in the middle on, on some of those things. And I don't know that I have clear thoughts either. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I remember the way I always think of it, you know, it's Malth It's like, well, I think even Quinn kind of uses, I'm paraphrasing, but like a reverse Malthusian where for Malthus, it was, Oh, population will outstrip the food when, when Quinn was like, no, it's just that food just makes more people, right? And he's like, well, sure. if you just stop making so much food, people just stop having kids. And then he kind of does this, like, mental, it's almost, he's, it's not mental gymnastics, but it's a reach, because I think it's in Ishmael, the first book, that he says, you know, the, the main character is like, well, Africa's starving and they have kids. He's like, yeah, but, like, the UN sends them food. You know, and he's kind of doing this. He's talking about it like on a global scale, not always just nationally, yeah. which is really interesting to think about, like the globalization aspect of that. But then you're like, they're still starving, though. Like they're not quite at like a, a healthy substance level. <laughs> so I'm not quite right. sure that argument totally works, but I know what he's trying to say. Yeah, I mean, he's saying that the, the that increase in food production will inevitably lead to more population so yeah it's maybe that mouth has turned on his, its head but at the same time it kind of ends up in the same place because he's he's mm -hmm. interrogating the question of of the starving third world and saying uh, um that you know by enabling food higher food production there's going to be enabled more population so i mean from an absolutist basis that is probably necessarily true that the there must be some function of the total amount of food and population i mean in a sort of absolutist logical term you know that clearly if you have no if there's no available food for any species then there will be no none of that species uh so there has to be sort of a a hypocaloric environment generally in order mm -hmm. to uh, a hypercaloric environment i should say gotcha yeah that makes sense uh, then I wanted to back up a little bit more when you you're making, you mentioned Delul, and I know he is a, I'll use the word controversial, maybe notorious in some uh, anti-Civ circles because of his association with Kaczynski, right? Kaczynski basically just like babyfies Alul 
like seriously babies him in terms of like trying to reproduce some of his theory. Um, and I know people, I guess they like they put Alul up against Mumford and they're like, oh, you have to like pick one of these lineages of like thought almost. Yeah. Have you have you seen that? Like there's a certain someone I think you know who I'm talking about that does this. Um uh and some <laughs> people generally. Uh but what do you think about that? What is the role of uh, uh of Mumford alongside Alul? I'm curious. Well, I guess that probably stems from the fact that Alul spend a lot of time or LUL, depending on who you're listening to. Uh, spent, depend, spends a lot of time critiquing Mumford in the first section of technological society. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly, Elul is, is trying to make this greater distinction between about technique and the uh, efficiency, you know, the, 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 the prerogative of efficiency through technological progress and um, sort of defining inefficiencies and creating uh, supposed efficiencies or a faster way to do certain things within the a certain set um and mumford was you know a little bit more interested and i'm not i haven't read a ton of mumford i've read uh, most of techniques i think and uh, a few essays you know uh, but mumford is mm-hmm. far more interested in the periodical kind of uh, argument um the mm-hmm. machine age and, and such um but i think mumford's right. really helpful i mean and I don't even th- I I don't think Alul would say that Mumford's not helpful. And in fact, Alul uses Mumford positively in other pieces, not not yeah. in tech society really. So I think he's just providing a good faith critique of some of Mumford's schema, and, I, and that's probably fine, you know. Uh, but I yeah I don't think you got to pick one or the other. That that seems silly. Certainly, Alul's not right about everything. I mean, you know, he kind of he's he's also sort of a he wrote a, a book in the I see that was a loud one. He wrote a book in the uh, 1980s called The Betrayal of the West, which you can kind of get at where his, his, some of his shortcomings are. Um, mm-hmm. well, it's, a, it's an interesting read, but, you know, a little sees maybe more like, you know, Sartre or somebody, you know, sees uh, very essential human uh, qualities and, and things that must be defended within, within our culture. But ultimately, theologically, you know, he thinks you have to just struggle for for anarchy but you're never going to get there it's impossible to get there yeah that reminds me of like i can't remember the book i think it's oh it's by a german author it's this idea of the anarch um that the anarch is this person who doesn't seek anarchism because he derives meaning from being anti-authoritarian it's not quite the same thing he's getting at but like it's a fiction book name on which i'm forgetting but basically that he has meaning only as a, only as much as he has opposition to something like the state capitalism yada 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 it's like a egoist derivative uh but it's from a fiction book and that just reminded me of that oh that's interesting yeah there, there's another sort of uh christian egoist derivative there uh Berdayev, that i think is interesting as well if people mm-hmm. are you know open to reading a text uh critically and not accepting nor rejecting everything that's in it I know that's hard. I have to teach my students that still many anarchists still can't quite grasp at that if you read something, you have to believe all of it or none of it at all. That's that's something I teach them that, hey, you can take something from this even if you disagree. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, like, speaking of influences, too, like I think Christopher Lash is a is a, a fantastic read, but I disagree with him on, you know, probably way more than I agree with him. But the history of of leftism and its failures uh, and the, the takeover of the social reformers through the early 1900s. And, you know, the, he's a great person to read because 
you might not know that wage slavery was once a public debate, you know, and, and right. now is a, now is a, a narrow political subculture. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really curious, and this is a main reason I brought you on is Oak five came out earlier this year. Um, and so if tell people what is Oak, what's Oak journal, what's it about and where does it come from? Start. I, I was on the. I, I, edited, I was an editor with uh, Black and Green Review, which became Wild Resistance um, through the first couple issues, and uh, that sort of fell apart for me. And after that, I sort of took some time thinking, you know, maybe participating in the anarchist scene just yields more negative effects than anything else. It's just uh, not getting me anywhere towards what I still feel is that that what I do feel is a kind of spiritual core or an appeal to both anarchy and the primitive or at least a, a kind of return um, so um, yeah what was your question again so does it where did it come about oh, oh, and... yeah oh, right. yeah yeah so uh, I, I <laughs> kind of came from from there um, you know, I I don't know if I can really identify with the feelings that I had at the time, but uh, yeah, I just I thought that something non-sectarian, something more interesting would be, you know, I just you know, GA Green Anarchy was, was such a key publication for me, and it kind of ended right as I was getting to the point where I would really be submitting things to it. Um, so I want I wanted that diversity, that disagreement, and uh, of course, maybe I just wanted a simulation of a an era that was never going to happen, but uh, which is, seems to be partly the case as it concerns, uh, you know, wanting to get letters in and, and things like that, uh, which which doesn't really happen too much. Um, so I want an anti-civilization, non-sectarian sort of space for people to say a bunch of stuff that people agree with. So one of my favorite things about Oak is that I always get a call from somebody from different directions, like telling me how much. I shouldn't have published like one article that's in there, you know. It's all great except for the one on veganism, or it's all great except for the one on police activism, or you know, something like that. So, uh, mm -hmm. or and so that's I actually find that to be pretty enjoyable, uh, especially since I don't really have any internet presence, so it's not like, sort of gnawing at me all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that that's kind of where Oak started and uh you know these anarchist publications just take a lot of time to raise funds and uh so over a few years now we have five issues and we've moved a little bit away from interviews and the podcast idea um which we started with and uh focusing more on on essays from what i remember uh you called those it was like the intent if I remember correctly, it was that every or every oak that goes in the print, there would be like a side sister project that was like an audio zine, right? Something like that. Was that what the original intent was? Yeah, that was the original idea. The the, the idea was that. So it was a sort of compromised position because everybody's telling in you and yelling at you that you you have to have an online presence and, and all these things. And I thought, well, audio is a little you have to pay attention a little bit more to something that's just, that's just audio if it's going to be worthwhile to you. So maybe we could have 
some of these interviews were doing recorded and of course people were sending music and and things like that at the time um and also do readings um and and, and people who were just never going to sit down and read a magazine which i acknowledge a lot of people just don't read hardly at all anymore so i thought this would be a way um but it became clear starting that that uh, the people that it was reaching were not really the people that I was hoping it was going to reach. And they were more looking for me to increase the entertainment value, um, oh. which I'd already felt like I had spent a lot of time doing. But it was like, oh, well, it could be a little bit better. And and at the same time, those people were not buying the magazine um, or, or a decent portion of them were not buying the magazine. Um, so I thought, well, this is costing money to host this. and it's taking a ridiculous amount of time to produce. Uh, I'll probably be able to do another magazine if I don't. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you said you weren't a, they weren't reaching the people that you wanted. Who were you hoping to reach? Is it again, just the people that couldn't read people that are interested in the content, but just weren't going to read the magazine. Is that what you mean? Yeah. People who were, um, who were not going to read the magazine or for whatever reason, they weren't able to get a copy delivered to them. Um, or they had even contributed to the magazine and weren't going to read it. Cause I feel like that happens sometimes. Um, and then when they did that, they would, um, or through the podcast, they would be able to access some of the diverse content that's in it instead of just like scrolling to their piece or, um, and, also people just going from one author because we had of course in the beginning you have this huge list of initial associations so the people who contribute and the people you interview um and trying to ex- force more exposure between those things and i actually think that wasn't even needed i think i underestimated the crowd that oak would draw and the people that were actually reading it were doing just a fine job what is the what is the reach of oak or is it just very so often depending on the issue it varies a bit depending on the issue for now this latest issue is fairly limited and it's just just mostly to do to to printing funds um which i think there are other anarchist publications that are in the same boat uh coming out right now so i think uh it's just it's just the way it is it would be great if uh could afford a giant print run um but you know most of that ends up just being like sort of personally financed and it's just not sustainable so mm-hmm. yeah can i ask what the print costs on a on a on a limited run like oak five looks like what is the cost of that well the you if you're not spending at least 500 dollars, you're getting ripped off so basically increments of that yeah if you unless you want to retail it for like 30 bucks you know or do something crazy yeah it's it's it can be intimidating to to get it all together. Um, if we did like tabloid or something, we could get a lot more copies, obviously. But I do think that the aesthetics of the magazine are uh, part of what draws people in. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, like it because I don't know any other journal that looks the way yours does. Like yeah, when I look at if you took away the cover, like it didn't say oak. Like I could tell it's oak, right? Just based off its aesthetic, there is a there is a consistent design that i really like about it it's 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 not edgy but it's not like necessarily like you know it's not roses and and fairies right it's very it's very uh it's very primitivist i think and i like that a lot 
Thanks. Yeah, try and keep it simple, readable, something that people can pick up and, and get into. Um, if we were doing like a staple bound thing, I would definitely go more towards like a GA type layout because mm-hmm. um, I, I really do like that aesthetic as well. But yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're on the fifth issue. And then I think you mentioned something about the editorial in five. Something. Yeah, yeah. So something I wanted to talk about. But before that, because I, I yeah. wanted to look back, I, I looked back to when I first came across calling for submissions back in July of 2019, which is that's so long ago. Oh, my God. Um, I rem- and yeah, I'm looking at comments. It's on anarchistnews.org, which, you know, that's where you're going to get real discourse about anarchism. That's where you go, right? Yeah. That's where you can go. You, maybe you can tell me the truth as per A News. What does it say? Uh, so someone says, so put it in a nutshell, action-oriented, bid-tent, anti-civ propaganda. All right, that's a bit of a guided question, but you can... Fine. But the follow-up is LOL, an anti-civ journal that's basically calling for left unity. Nice. Oh, I like that one, actually. Yeah, I think actually that one has a point. I think that one has a point. I think it probably did do that, a little bit of that. Because yeah. you weren't. And as you said, you, you were aiming for something that was non-sectarian. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Exp- I mean, you know, and it's one of these things where, you know, it's not a party magazine. I mean, I still stand mm-hmm. by that part. Because you know, it's it's like what is interesting to people who are talking about anti-civilization ideas. A lot of the ideas that are interesting are pro-civilization or, and or liminal to the scene, right? So those right. are the things that invigorate discussion and that keep things moving. So, you know, it's like when you open up a fifth estate, sometimes, you know, and I, I love Peter Werby, uh, and it's impressive that they would <laughs> keep it going so long. But it's like a great example of just opening up and it's just like, this one message through the whole thing and edited each piece edited to have nearly the same language uh not you know not exactly there's the writer can shine through a little bit but they really like to go through and edit things pretty heavily um so i thought it would be more interesting to let uh more authentic voices come through and then Mm -hmm. hopefully with the with the idea of provoking debate you know right kind of you yeah, that's always the hope but then people are it's either oh this also it's and this is what i'm worried about when i when i'm thinking about my upcoming zine is um you know i really want to generate debate but is this going to be the only people that read it or people that are going to basically agree with everything or is there going to be people that's like anti-civ oh you stupid fucking eco-fascist scum you're not a real anarchist you know what i mean <laughs> nothing actually comes out from it in any meaningful way yeah well i'm i don't have a you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Have a lot of words of hope for you on that particular one, but I, uh, I'll say this: it's it's certainly gathered a, a few interesting people together, and I've made a lot of uh, good connections. And I think it's uh, it's been worthwhile for me, and I hope mm-hmm. that it's worthwhile for the people who are looking for to read about this shit and to read about it in a way that's not like uh, a post uh, on the internet. And it's something that can really. Uh, you know, maybe contemplate and and get pissed off, or you know, when people write and say like, "Oh, that one really shook me. I'd never seen it before." No, that's that's great. I I appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, I think yeah. there's something there. But it's, if the if the project is to create, sort of going back to the comment, if it is to create a sort of political unity or to, you know, I certainly have never called for solidarity or anything like that. But if that were the project, um. 
and, and I think there's a little echo of that in early Oak. You know, I, I do think that's mm -hmm. a little problematic. What do you think you're really doing? Um, so for instance, like in the, in the early Oak, I went down to yellow Finch tree sit and interviewed everybody there. And right. I remember, that. I remember that. Um, and then, you know, that was cool. Cause it helped a, a few good connections, but at the same time, I was, I'm not really sure what it, what was the point of that other than a sort mm -hmm. of, um, facile celebration, you know, like, Oh yeah. Like, look, look what we're doing. I'm not sure what I picked up from that experience other than, you know, eventually they got removed, uh, which is not something I didn't know was already going to happen. I mean, I was already had a little trepidation about going, but it was so close, you know? Uh, and, and I, I, I respect anybody's like, you know, trying to do something or trying to work through in, uh, in the world, what, what to do. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not like ready to shit on that. Right. So I'm, I'm capable of going to things like that and not getting into a fight. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, that made sense. So with Oak five, there's a few things I wanted to talk about, but we'll start with kind of that opening, the opening editorial that, you know, as you and I talked about, apparently ruffled some fucking feathers. Uh. Oh, really? <laughs> Did it? Yeah. Um, and so I don't you know. know. You, open up, you open up talking about, you know, you know, we can pretend that anti-civilization thought is a deep well to draw from, but it is decidedly the case that even if that is true, the suppression of the perspective by major anarchist publishing houses ever wonder how they seem to always stay around. Mates anti-civilization or primitivist thoughts seem out of the ordinary, dangerous, or outside the rules of the game. Of course, for, for, for those of us interested, that is potency. Outside the rules of the game, please tell me more. And then you go on to talk about kind of this, like, the leftist attack upon anti-civ and even a leftization of primitivism in particular yeah. um what did that look like what pulled you to to talk about that because i see that too but i'm really curious what does that have to do with your perspective and what is it, its relationship to oak anything you want to talk about with that like why did you write about that oh i was pissed off about something and i wrote that in you know about 10 minutes um <laughs> <laughs> um and i don't even remember particularly what it was but something that always comes back to me is this this you know the the constant social conformism of all of these anarchist movements that seems to want to always take on the newest lingo and sort of it's like you know some of Maoist groups is like this as well you know they create they sort of grift on to like, like whatever is the uh oh, yeah the ascetic cultural moment but the funny thing about that is that I think anarchists incubate a lot of those. So they're in this position where they, they sort of incubate these ideas, like let's take like a decolonization or something, for example, where that's incubated in a lot of spaces. I was familiar with it. And then it's like sort of redeployed in this mass and insane way where now decolonization applies to like museum management. Uh, you know, and I understand theoretically how you get there, but I don't see what that has to do with the project of primitivism or the project of anarchy. It seems to me that we're attempting to socially conform our theory in order to be more acceptable, to put ourselves up to be judged by the uh, sort of parole board. So, it, yeah, 
that puts our ideas up to be judged by some critical authority where we, oh yeah, we mm -hmm. really got the monopoly on the good. You know, we've mm -hmm. really, right. we, we figured all out. If you want material egalitarianism in a, in a utopian society, you just got to go back to primitivism. And I don't think that that's uh, very helpful or necessarily true considering where we would be coming from. So, uh, Right. Yeah, I get yeah. A, I get a little bit uh, miffed when I see anarchists and supposed rebels and these uh, just basically socially conforming to whatever is is happening. And I see that within within my limited exposure to online primitivism, I see some of that. But yeah, I just I I think we uh, I don't have any illusion that a primitivist resistance would be uh, an efficient process or anything like that. Or that it would even have some goal of, of a certain uh, uh, obtaining a certain thing, but um, I know that it doesn't look like socially conforming to the most powerful elements in our current apparatus. And the most powerful elements, ironically, for us in the U.S., from like the the you know maybe retreating, but still nonetheless a sort of imperial center, where we feel like. Uh, I think I end that editorial saying something like uh, that we might just be the whiny brats at the center of uh, the wealthiest uh, civilization ever exists or something. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I don't think that that's, you know, always the case. That's not, you know, you, we're not like destined to always be in that center, but we have to, <laughs> we have to look at where we are. You know, we're, we're, uh, it, it starts to just feel kind of absurd to me. You know, we're, we're, we're not, we don't really have our eye on the target at all. Yeah. And I admit, like, I come from an online presence, a strong online primitivist presence up until really about a year ago, but especially when the FBI came to my apartment and asked me about memes on Twitter. I've never <laughs> Yeah. Um uh that's a whole thing I've I've some I've touched on a little bit on this podcast, but we won't do that now. Um, you know, I remember I was like, oh, like I still I would have considered myself a a left wing primitivist. You know what I mean? Uh, like, yeah. you know, so I was really concerned and I was very, and this is what I was ignorant. Like I just started reading Ted and future primitive by Zerzan. Like I didn't know the scene. I didn't really understand primitivism, but I was like, I agree. Civilization is bad. Like, I think that's kind of where I was for a long time. And I was like, oh, like if we just got rid of civilization, we'd all hold hands and walk into the sunset singing Kumbaya as, you know, but now I'm starting to understand like generational trauma, internalized colonialism, like the Leviathan's armor, right? From Pearlman, like what that implies for social change. If social change is, and you're, as you're talking about, is that something desirable? Like, is that what we can do? Like, and I think some primitivists, early primitivists, kind of hold on to this is if they come from like let's just say like a social anarchist background like we're not going to have like the spanish revolution but like green right that's not happening <laughs> let's just be honest with ourselves uh sure. unfortunately you know, fortunately or unfortunately depending on your perspective right so i mean i don't have a desire to be the so you know to be the new social engineer seems like uh you're playing with the wrong robo you know all of mm -hmm. you're just going to create more more misery i mean it's you have to look more foundationally at what's going on you know we're not going to be able to quantify ourselves into a primitive existence it's not uh that's not something that's going to happen and um i don't think that through a series of incremental reforms we sort of 
break the mold. I think we reestablish the mold, um, but with less and less meaning each time. So we're sort of also awash. And, you know, I, I wonder if the, the end great catastrophe will not really be ecological in the direct sense, but, uh, you know, more just like a mass suicide movement, you know, because everyone just seems so uh, interested in uh, defining quantifiably who they are through these technological tools to say, oh, yeah, I am exactly this, you know, and through the machine understands that I like, you know, kayaking on the weekend and supporting Bernie Sanders or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and it, 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 it's, it satisfies this desire for meaning, but at the same time, uh, it, it's totally empty and there's nothing through, we can see through it. We, it's totally transparent. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, well, yeah, it's shallow and both everybody knows what's going on. You know, right? It's uh, anyway. I, I so yeah, those sorts of things lead me away from leftism. I would not say leading away from leftism goes into the right. I think if you think like that, then you're really caught in like a, a very essential semi prison, and that sucks for you. Uh, um, <laughs> but it's, it's but like it's it's just wrong on a fundamental level, and um. I mean, that's not to say that, I mean, I, I read people from the left all the time, probably more people from the left than from the right. Um, and that goes back to not taking everything as sort of gospel in, in every book. You know, it, uh, sometimes I'm just looking for somebody to make a interesting point that will just get me thinking about something different. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and another part of five I wanted to talk about is, was it intentional that a lot of it would be about the written word? Because, you know, I'm reading uh, Plant Energy by Sasha Engel right now, and him and I have been in conversation. He's going to be on the podcast soon. But when I got it, I was like, whoa, it's it's all over. It's all in this. And it's like, it's so I was interested. Was that planned or did that just happen to be as it came together, took that direction? Yeah, I really just kind of took that direction. I think two things collided to do that. One was, um, you know, Sasha has contributed before. I really wanted to have a review of Sasha's book, uh, Breaking the Alphabet, uh, mm-hmm. which didn't happen directly. But instead, we ended up getting an interview from Ian, which I think is a really good interview. And I think anybody who's like trying to get a hold of like, what is Sasha saying in general terms? It's, it's pretty helpful. Um, and then we yeah right i think that i think it's pretty helpful and then there's uh my sort of piece that i penned in uh in lieu of a review which is just sort of asking some questions about how do we interrogate language or the deployment of some sort of new uh symbol system uh uh or hieroglyphics or whatever it might be um and then sasha's piece as well and I think that that's it, but it's a, Sasha's piece is quite long writing against time. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it makes up a, makes up a pretty big chunk of the, of the magazine and it's most I have a sense, but I think it's nice. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that it's, it's an important thing to look at that I look at it necessarily through the same lens as Sasha. And we're kind of talking back and forth about that right now, but uh, yeah. Did you enjoy it or? Yeah, I mean, I re- I was actually rereading it today on my height. 
I went to go do some restoration. Turned out I I drove 30 minutes and then I forgot I went a week ahead from everyone. So I went there, did it myself. And then I uh, I sat out by the creek on a rock and I started reading. I, I read, I, I'll be honest, when I first got it, I was also in the middle of reading everything. So I stemmed most of it. Uh, so I was reading it really the last couple of days and I read it again today for this interview. And I thought the interview helped with Sasha and Ian was helped so much. Cause I'll be honest. And I'm going to bring this up with Sasha. I'm reading plant energy right now. No idea what the fuck it's saying. <laughs> it's uh, okay. And I yeah. love, and I love Sasha's work. Don't get me wrong. I think this is a really interesting Avenue because when people think language abolition or critique of language, everyone just thinks Zerzan. And I think there's, I think Sasha's trying to do something practical with it. I don't always agree with it, but I think it's, I don't have to. I think it's an interesting avenue, whether or not I think it's "quote unquote" the right avenue, right? Um, I think it's awesome. And yeah. I thought your thinking. I think your piece was called "Thinking or Writing Through Language" or something. Thinking through writing, yeah, something thinking, like that. Yeah. Um, thinking. And I think yours was really good. It was really succinct and kind of, as you said, in lieu of a review. I think it it's generated that. So we have Sasha as a springboard, and already we've seen your, in addition to Ian's uh, questions, springboarding off of that and generating good discussion about what it means um so i thought it was really good i that's why i was i was i like when journals um focus on a topic because sometimes they're like oh just write i'm like okay about what right uh so i thought that it was cool that i as you said it wasn't necessarily intentional just things came together and i like that yeah. it has um a theme essentially even uh, at least through like the middle part of it i guess or the opening part rather yeah yeah um, I also have Sasha's new book, so I'm excited to get into that. I think one of the things that's nice about going back and forth with Sasha is uh, there's a lot of uh, attempt to take what the other person is saying at a at a, at its best <laughs> and to sort of respond to that. And so yeah, that's that's been really interesting. Like how Sasha read that piece to me, it was really encouraging. Like that we were kind of starting a, a dialogue that might be really interesting instead of. No, you're wrong. Uh, you know, you you can break alphabet and do this. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm encouraged by I'm encouraged by the connections. I think that's the best part about publications is developing yeah. those. And yeah, no, I think I, I think that's really cool. Uh, so we were talking a bit before that, you know, with the editorial kind of this deep critique. But maybe from uh, from another perspective, what positive developments are you seeing in primitivism, if any? Because there could be that you don't think there's much, but what is there right now? Uh, or do you think what spaces might be opening up in the anti-civ slash primitivist scene? Well, I don't, I don't know, and I don't have any measurements um, of anything happening on the internet or in publication, really, other than I seem to be getting more books in the mail. Um, which I think is generally pretty interesting. And so far, they've been good and um, invigorating in a way. So that that's that's been nice. Uh, I, theoretically, I don't know that there is much in a positive development. I guess uh, I, I uh, it depends on how we define that. I think uh, I think black blossoms at the um, end of the world is a lot of really a lot of things that ring true to me with how you, you know, sort of walk through the world with having these ideas um, mm -hmm. and sort of leaving behind an, an activist core and embracing 
the people are around you and also sort of causing mischief within that context. Um, so that, that's been good. Uh, I'm not terribly up on everything. I sure I don't even know. Um, I'm sure I've missed plenty, so I don't know really mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. if there are positive developments or what that would necessarily mean. I think it, it would be good to see primitivism take itself in a different way um, and be a little bit a little bit less about ingrati ingratiating itself to uh, the dominant structures, but we've already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, the reason I asked is, you know, I'm suddenly, you know, I've, I've suddenly have a lot of people that want to come onto the podcast, like Sasha, James V. Morgan, Jessica Kraft. Those are three people that want to be on soon. And so I, I just finished editing a version of Human Rewilding in the 21st Century, Why Anthropologists Fail or North American Response to Lavi et al.'s Rewilding Your Inner Hunter Gatherer. As I said, that's by James V. Morgan, who yeah. um, goes by I a different I'm name, but I'll just call them. Book. Yeah, I'll just do a, I'll just call him James for now. But, you know, like, you know, you were mentioning like the anthropological, like doctrinarianism, but still, I think there's obviously still room where I don't think you're trying to say there's no room for anthropology. So when you just define pr primitivism as, I guess, like applied or radical anthropology, I guess is a way to put it. Um, but I think like this is a, that was a really good piece. Um, and I was a big fan of it. And I'm, I'm excited to have him on here in the near future, um, as well as Jessica Kraft who's putting a book together, who's, which I'm now blanking on, but she's talking about what it's like to be, uh, you know, transitioning from the tech world to bushcraft rewilding with like the subtle tones of primitivism. Um, and then again, Sasha Engel's uh, plant anarchy, breaking the alphabet, all that, which is taking primitivism in a, at least in this very niche part of primitivism, right? Like the niche, niche part, language abolition and language critique, that's a whole thing in and of itself, right? And running with right. it. So I think that's really interesting. But then again, there's still the the social conformity of primitivism, which is for a, for a critique of what society, far too many primitivists are pro-society in a weird way, right? It's like, why yeah. do you care so much? why like and i get why you know if you want your books to sell which it that's what it is you gotta market them and it's what's the easiest way to do that uh a, a appeal to what's going on in the discourse and of course you know yeah. you can appeal to what's going on in the discourse and try to make primitivism applicable in that way so if an issue comes up right decolonization you know i work with an indigenous group and i've had a had someone on the podcast from that and to me that connects to my primitivism but then again there's still sure. And him and I've talked about there's land back, like lowercase, which is just this commodifiable, de-radicalized idea. And then there's actually like an issue of land sovereignty that needs to be addressed, right? And what colonization yeah. means and its relationship to technology. Uh, there's so many routes I want primitivism to take. And I think that I have this idea what my journal to be. But as you've talked about with Oak, you're like, I'm like, fuck, that's what I want. But then now he's talking about how it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because you want to. Re I mean, obviously, if you're doing a media project, you have some desire to be heard. So we can't get past mm -hmm. that. I don't think. So yeah, I I understand where that's coming from, but I I want to go back a little bit to those books because um, I'm familiar with with both of them, and I think, you know, James is probably as far as like anthropologically based primitivism. James is the person to talk to, and. Mm -hmm. 
I think a lot of what he has shared with me through the years has been incredibly helpful. And I, I don't know that I frame what he's saying in the same way that he's framing it. But, you know, when it comes down to the things that really piss us off or the sort of root disgust that we can like most bond over, they're the same thing. So I know that there's, there's a lot there. Um, and I, and I think the, the problem with, you know, when you're going into mass marketing things or trying to appeal and, and judging the value of your idea by its circulation, you're really going to be tempted to fall into, uh, to play to associative logic or like mechanical thought, whereby things which signal in different ways get automatically associated in the sort of quote unquote culture war. And anarchists mm-hmm. tend to participate in that. Therefore, they can, you know, the, things will get uh, automatically categorized as being fashy or right wing, right? But then on the other right. side, what if your editor or your publishing house goes, actually, we want to appeal to sort of like survivalist Trump supporters, which you could totally see, right? right? I mean, that's a, that's a total av- like marketing avenue. So you would need to therefore change the language. So everything is basically always uh, being influenced by the regime of inevitable propaganda that you cannot escape. But I think that there are different ways to go about it that are more successful than others. The best would be to be controversial to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's usually a pretty good sign. When, when every corner is a little pissed off, you've probably... <laughs> You've probably come as close to success in that as you can. That makes sense. Yeah, I was, because I was about to ask, it's like, then what's the quote unquote solution? And as you say, it's just be, just be controversial, be, uh, or God forbid, be radical. Isn't that a thought, you know, as anarchists, you know, you're going to have to piss some people off. I'm sorry to, sorry to tell you that being an anarchist isn't going to placate most people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. And then, and, and even your personal identification might be really important to you. And depending on how big you've built that in your online presence, it may or may not be something that is reflected upon by the reviewers and the critiquers. It, it might be. And then they'll read your work in a different way. Right. But if it's not there, then it's open to this sort of crazy interpretation. But I kind of like, you know, the hit piece thing has gotten so repetitive where um you know people kind of denounce or condemn something uh that almost it's almost entertaining and and kind of fun now um Mm -hmm. because i think nobody's really who who's really but buying it i mean only the most doctrinaire ideologues are (laughs) who basically are compiling a list in their head of like the good ones and the bad ones you know which is like I right. I come out of like metal and there's this whole era of like where it was these bloggers like organizing black metal bands by their racist or non-racist affiliations, you know, and it was this like pedantic internet research project um, that ultimately, you know, was, was I mean, I think com- com- total waste of time, but um, yeah, that's the kind of logic i think we're still dealing with it might change though because that's sort of search engine right like that 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 associative logic like it kind of the search engine pulls you towards the different directions right so but now with ai 
maybe we're going to enter into sort of like a new paradigm as far as people condemning or relating to ideas that they disagree with. It maybe become more like truth-based, you know, because <laughs> you have this sort of iro- ironical, like split, uh, like mimetic uh, dialogue between the dominant structures, uh, you know, the, the supposedly left-right of different ideas of, of truth, you know, and yeah, like right-wing GPT and uh, regular, supposedly, uh, you know, things like that are going to probably change the way that we practice condemnation. I actually it'll probably get worse, but there'll probably be more room on the margins for people who aren't using it already. And who I agree with that. That's really interesting. I, I really like that. That's a really interesting, I guess, prediction. Uh, I'm really open to that. That's really cool. Sweet. Yeah, it probably won't happen, but I mean, you know, here's hoping. I, I'm allowed to be optimistic every once in a while. When you're anti-civ, you can't be you can't be a shithead all the time, right? You can't just imagine everything so bad all the time. Though it's hard. No, and, um, and I I don't think that that's a good way to even approach your your theory because there's a sort of like a problem, right? If we take the Anthropocene to be like this defining, you know, we can define in science the effect of humans through its grandiose scale and its destructive efforts through the Anthropocene. And it's sort of like, makes it seem as though we are the inevitable world controllers, right? It's like self-reinforcing of the mm-hmm. concept that it's attempting to undermine. And uh, I think that that's going the same way with, with lots of, that's unfortunately it's a problem with ecology in, it, 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 as far as it's politicized, is that it creates these certain crises which open up new avenues or new grids of control which can be deployed, mm-hmm. you know? So that they're not, and they're not addressing anything, right? So it, it's only going to define its efficiency within a narrow band. We could, everybody can can just live in a totally empty desert. But if we can figure out how to feed everybody and bring CO two down, we'll all be happy. You know, like that's right. the kind of ecological logic that, unfortunately, because it does submit itself to that quantification, that intense objectification that. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to t- even talk about how I identify or uh, experience being in in the world because it's far removed from just understanding raw ecological processes or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have too much to say to that. That was a whole lot, but uh, it's a lot for to process. That's a whole lot of information, but I think a lot of that's really good. Um, so um, we're gonna. I want to shift gears, uh, continuing on the development of primitivism, anti-civ. I just before I ask this next question, how do you differentiate the terms, if at all, primitivism, anarcho-primitivism from from anti-civilization? Because it's weird. Because at some point those two were synonymous, and now they're not necessarily like pr- anti-civ. You know, primitivism means anti-civ, but anti-civ doesn't necessarily mean primitivist. So what is what is your conception of that? Um, loose. I think uh, anti-civilization is is a bit of a broader term. It appeals a little bit more to the inherently negationist uh, instinct of the young radical. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a bit more something to to, to grab onto. Now, Marx really thinks that it's that it's uh, bad framing, or it could be a problematic framing. He doesn't say bad. 
um, which is a whole nother thing. So, uh, yeah, anti-civilization, I would see as as generally your anti-civilization, if <laughs> if you're looking for a sort of primitive return, ironically, you know, that's where I can never kind of get out of it, because what are you talking about, about anti-civilization outside of a technological, uh, you know, uh, a movement away to, from technology, which mm-hmm. to me implies a primitivism or an inherent radicality, you know, that it talking about being radical, uh, you know, the thing that has propelled and the continuity between all of these civilizations, even through collapse in ancient society is the, the, the movement of the technique. And now we're in such a, in a, in a global, uh, memory hold, uh, you know, compilation of all of these technologies. So I don't see how you can necessarily be anti-civilization. I, I suppose it would it would depend upon your definition of civilization. Um, but but uh, for me, if we're taking civilization as being uh, cities or domestication, you take either one of those, I guess, you're still talking about um, a movement against technology. It's kind of the interesting thing about like Graeber and um, James C. Scott and some of these people that talk about this sort of early agricultural period of a sort of like anarcho um, both, you know, raiding early agriculture um, that there was a, there was this like 4,000 year period of sort of an anarchic society that was sort of proto civilizational. Right. Right. And that that sort of shows that it's not um, it, it's not a, an inevitable, you know, it's almost, an, you know, of course, James sees this as an attack against primitivism, that the fundamental thing that they're really refuting is that you would need to go back. But at the same time, the the only persistent example they're able to show is one of incredibly reduced technological capability. Right, right. So it's pretty ironic. Because you would, of course, be at a point. There's not a uh, a label of civilization at this at this point that they're talking about. You know, that's not right. being thought about in those ways. So, I, I don't uh, I don't know if you are anti civilizational, anti civilization, and don't want to say primitivist for whatever reason. I totally get that. You want to say you're a green anarchist or what? I don't really care at all. Um, yeah. But if you're attempting to go against the overall structure and you're not willing to implicate technology in that struggle, then that's probably where you're going to lose me. I'm going to say you're not anti-civilization. Yeah. Cause I, but I did before we get to the question, it's I've been noticing, and I thought this was just one of those really like, as we say, terminally online kind of opinions, but there's a yeah. growing, I'm anti-civ, but I'm not anti-tech. You're like, what the fuck does that mean? What do you mean by that? Like, you can't do like, I'm just against social control. But I was like, what do you think technology is? Like, what? It's like, are you? It's funny because leftists, they critique correctly the right wing volunteerism of like the market, right? So, well, you just, you're, it's all voluntary, right? But they don't apply that to technology or civilization for some fucking reason. Right. And so you can fall into these like they can admit because civilization, what you can't deny what it's doing. But you're like, well, I'm against that. But like, you know, and then that's where it kind of gets into like the post civ kind of thing a little bit where it's like 
you're just like blueprinting a future you have no idea about and you're calling it an ideology. I don't know. It just that shit annoys me so much because it's you live in a fantasy land. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, you know, the there was a marshalling of that argument about technology for a long time, and it's kind of died because the, the big one was the cell phone. And at the time, yeah. the, the, the cell phone was actually problematized. Being, will this be compulsory? Will I need to have one in order to get a job and do things like that? You know, and of course it was like, no. No, 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 no. And it was like, well, should, should we really be distracted to the point we're getting into accidents and people are writing books about, you know, and it's this whole thing. And that battle was won on the side of technology so decidedly that it just never... Yeah has come back right they're not going to marshal this voluntary bullshit anymore they're not going to even pretend in fact if you deny it it's because you want people to starve and die you know so mm -hmm. <laughs> that's kind of uh kind of where it's gone um post civ i mean you know and daniel quinn is really responsible for the post civ idea i think I agree. um and i mean the non civilization book which was pretty much uh, a worthless tag. I don't really know why he would write it other than for himself as a, almost a journal. And that's what I get. And, yeah. Yeah. But then the idea to like put it out for all of these people that had read the previous books and came away with different ideas was uh, strange, was really strange because it was, it was eerily prescriptive toward kind of nothingness. Like, yeah, just. Yeah tribal outside of you know and that's all that's all fine but um and, you know i i guess i don't have a ton of problem with people who call themselves positive because they're probably doing about as much to do uh you know against uh, or for civilization as anybody who calls themselves anti-civ i mean we live in a a motivist power paradigm we get to pick and choose what we identify as so uh Mm -hmm. I try not to take any of that too seriously. Yeah. So, and that the, you kind of touched on what I was going to ask. I'm fi now getting to the one of the last questions here, so we can wrap up. Is your thoughts on kind of the development of anti-civ beyond primitivism? But you're kind of touching on that because one I wanted your opinion on is uh, Bellamy's. Uh, um, I he, I don't remember what he calls it because he doesn't call it primitivism. He calls it auto something anarchy, and I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, yeah, it just came to mind where we're talking. Like, what do you think about? Because that was a whole thing. What was that? 2020, 2019. It was a little bit ago. Kind of that like Bellamy versus like all the primitivists. And I know, like, from my understanding, Zerzan and him have reconciled, and it wasn't like they were splitting in a sense of like a Marxist party, right? But then you know, Kevin Tucker and him are still. Not on good terms. That might more Marxist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, what do you think about some of those avenues where it's kind of like almost? I almost use the word like post-primitivist because it's like rooted in the primitivist critique, but is also trying to go beyond primitivism. And I know Kevin also presents primal anarchy that way, but I know your opinions on that are generally negative. So, what do you think about this kind of like post-primitivist critique? Yeah, I guess I don't really know that much um about it uh i think the move to primal anarchy uh to me was i didn't really i didn't really like that it se seemed to me 
like it was an invoking of the primal more towards definitive understanding of what some sort of absolute essence is and it would relate back to an anthropological concept like immediate return uh right you know matter kind of hunter-gatherer societies and sort of very mechanistic understandings of society like storage and things like that and and i thought that that was appeal more to solidify than it was to move away from primitivism uh generally uh mm-hmm. But, you know, then again, I guess I guess go back to uh, like I'm I'm critiquing that more from the perspective of what I think it's trying to do. But as far as the name goes or whatever, I mean, sure, I could definitely uh, in some context call myself a primal. But that wouldn't bother me too much. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah. So I don't know. I don't have a lot of ideas on on post primitivism. Uh, I, I I think if we can move a little bit past uh, some of these things to talk maybe past the labels and, and more towards what do we think has happened and what do we think is happening right now and how can we position ourselves to be um, more interesting, you know? So yeah, it's like the, the chat GPT and stuff. I mean, like we're all in the same boat. I mean, it might change your what you do in your life but in my experience it's pretty rare and uh the people that really do take take it on and live like a radical existence are a small percentage of the total uh people who become interested in in the ideology so or the idea yeah 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 that's i mean that's really all the questions i had and you know it was just about six real questions that got us to about an hour here so, you know, you mentioned in Oak 5 that this might be the last one for a while. Um, what, are, what is it looking like? Can, can people still support if we link it, if people buy copies, are those still available? What, is it, what does Oak look like going forward and how, people can, how can people support it? I think that Oak looks like there's going to be submissions piling up again. And I think um, my plan is going to be to get to them. Um, when I can, I think it's probably longer um, than would be ideal for a publication. So the biggest problem we have right now is distributing five because we don't have enough copies. Um, so there are like pre-orders available on the website. And if those are ordered now for the next few, they'll still ship. I'm just going to ship those right out. But um, yeah, hopefully get enough funds for another um, for another run. Uh, kind of the other side of, of distributing is, is shipping, which has gotten much more expensive just in the last year. So that's the other problem. Um, but I think eventually it'll happen and I think it'll come through and we'll be able to get more of five out and um, that'll maybe be good because it's going to be a while till six. But gotcha. if anybody has submissions, they can send them, um, you know, they can send them in uh, the uh, PO box on the website and the uh you can email them to journal at the protonmail.com awesome so are there any other projects that you yourself are looking to do that you want to talk about now or any previous projects that you've done in the past that you want to kind of hype up in the last couple of, couple minutes here oh uh not too much um i am going to be working on a a longer another longer project um i worked on one 
in between four and five, but I pretty much scrapped it. So gonna be uh, hopefully finishing that and find um, a publisher for it uh, sometime this year. Yeah, very, very cool. I just wanted to say again, you know, uh, thank you for coming on. You know, being a part of Oak uh, myself, you know, submitting stuff has been like fundamental to me. Um, like my ability to write and put them into you know in the words like my original submission to you all the way back right uh which is crazy to think about but regional development or my regional collapse regional liberation essay you know that was just me like throwing shit at the wall because that's about the time i was i was going through kind of like the kaczynskiite phase i was i was uh you know i was following the wild wills project if you remember that um with john jacoby and i I was going through a lot of interesting like developments with myself like what does resistance look like and i was a bit more of like a programmatic right like there's a movement here as opposed to just a a a trend of ideas um and then your feedback was really important and so now i'm connected and it's funny because like all the primitivists i have i say all of them like there's a large number but like three of us uh here and wherever the fuck i'm at uh you know, it's weird because I, I know all these people now that I would consider like, quote unquote, my influences, my heroes, and that it's now just casual for me to be able to just like email or call them or text them. And that's a very weird feeling given like a few years ago, I was, I was reading all their stuff and like, that's so cool. These guys are like the the elders or, you know what I mean? Not to, not to say <laughs> you're yeah. old, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's weird, character. you know, it's <laughs> you geriatric fuck. <laughs> Just um, the geriatric quasi fascist right right and so i just want to you know it's it's interesting and now i'm like putting my own zine together so it's just weird like how influential oak has been for me even in like subtle ways connecting me with people or building my confidence i don't consider myself a, a theorist but i'm you know i write stuff obviously i've submitted yeah. stuff um, well i think your piece and, was really I, important and i think that was a that was a central point of something that people could really grab onto in that in that issue and I, I was really happy that we could have you know we had like the interview with jake hanrahan and then and then your piece and uh you know and also uh, the report back from yellowfinch and it was kind of interesting to to ponder that question especially at that time which i don't know if you remember that zine did like the week of October. so um it was a really it was a really interesting thing to to encounter at that time i think your your audio cut out. You said the week of what or something like that. You said it was interesting because of that time. What? It was the week of uh, lo- the first uh, COVID lockdown. Uh, you know, the fifteen days to stop the right. spread or whatever. That was like it was at the oh printer, and it came back. And uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was it was and because previous to that that previous year, there was just so many things going on resistance wise around the around the world that made it, you know. You could be forgiven if you were a once a young leftist to be like, "Oh, it's happening." Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? You like, and and that I feel like I had a little bit of that moment. You know, and actually, uh, that whole that whole like wave that I was riding through watching all this stuff go on, and then the magazine sort of focusing on it to some extent, and then. Um, and then the 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 COVID lockdown was just like this giant crash. Like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> I mean, it's weird because there was the crash, but I remember like primitivists I knew 
it was just a weird time. Like, it was so strange. You're like, is this it? Like, I remember people seriously talking, like, is this a collapse we're about to see? Like, that was the I other thing, people, right? Right. Yeah. Like, that was a, it was weird because I was in college at the time. Um, and I remember everyone went home. The dorm shut down. School went online. Right. And I remember taking my daily walk around campus and then like around town, it was just, it was, I called it a ghost town. Cause I was like, everyone's gone or inside. I was like, this is weird. Cause it almost felt like ruins in that sense. Like COVID was such a weird time. And like you said, like a lot of the stuff that was in Oak one obviously wasn't written during COVID, but becomes oddly timely with COVID. Right. Yeah. Um, actually, I think it's so weird now. And, and, yeah, the, the whole thing was because it also it was kind of interesting because you had the one year before you had the hopes of uh, and I'm talking like personally, you know, I you know, you had this resurgent sort of quasi leftist popular movement like what? Maybe there's like a thing, you know, it, it is really in the air. There is a specter that the world, you know, and <laughs> you start you start to think like that for a second. And then it, it was it was a brief, honestly. And then that that ended the lockdown but it moved right into the next simulation of like ultimate catastrophe and it went right mm -hmm. into the collapse and it was like shit like nobody's doing working on like you know no one's working at the power plants and no what are they doing you know blah you start to think in all these ways and there's all these things that are happening some of which were like fake you know like the uh the dolphins swimming <laughs> in the canals uh in venice and stuff um so you start to see this this whole narrative play out before you in miniaturized fashion. Mm -hmm. And it became so clear that that was not what was happening right. in, such a in such a brutal way that uh, I think that that definitely informed the rest of the Oaks, for sure. It probably would have been a very different project had it not been for that. This has been on Civilized Podcast, episode 25. Thank you for listening.